My reading from the scriptures this morning is from the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start with the 35th verse and read through the end of the chapter. And it goes like this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, Why do the legal experts say that the Messiah is David's son? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be David's son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he was teaching, he said, Watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. And to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the story in scripture is, is traditionally called the widow's mite. The widow's mite being the two coins that she puts into the pot. And we don't talk about mites anymore, but we could think about it as being pennies. They were literally two cents that she put in the pot. And you see, Jesus is telling this story, reminding us of this story, to teach the disciples about what it means to be generous. It sounds a little bit like um, when you teach somebody the true meaning of Christmas or the true meaning of love or another important life lesson that's very weighty and we sort of roll our eyes at, you know. Have your parents ever set, did your parents ever set you down and say, I'm going to teach you the true meaning of being a person? Anyone else? No? Just my family? Okay. <laughs> but we rolled our eyes at my mom and dad and sort of went and sort of said, sure, mom, whatever you say. This is one of those Jesus stories. The ones we kind of go, uh-huh, that sounds, that sounds nice. And then we go on with our lives. You can just see the disciples sitting on the hillside around the temple, and maybe they were on blankets, and they were eating out of a wicker picnic basket. And you could see Jesus lifting the grapes and cheese out of the basket and taking a sip of wine and gesturing down the hill to the spectacle below, to the teams of crowds milling about, to the riot of symphony of colors and motion and people. He gestures casually to the crowd and mutters, look at all those people. Jesus was always doing this, was always teaching lessons and pointing to the disciples to one or another important lesson of faith. And his favorite, one of his favorite methods of teaching was compare and contrast. Now I hated compare and contrast essays in school Compare and contrast the value of, I don't know, whatever. I hated them this much, I've blocked them out of my mind, right? Some important object. Compare and contrast the value of the United States Constitution in the history of the world, right? And you would have to compare and contrast, go through all the little details. This is Jesus' favorite teaching method. Compare and contrast the prodigal son, the younger son with the older son. Compare and contrast. Or... Compare and contrast the Good Samaritan with the bad, evil religious people, right? 
Compare and contrast the rich lawyers with the widow. Who is doing what Jesus, what God wants? You can imagine the disciples rolling their eyes a little bit because they've heard this before. Maybe they make a little eye contact and laugh behind Jesus' back. Okay, whatever you say, Jesus. The scene below is perfectly ordinary. It's a normal one. This happens every day at the temple. It's just the normal week at the temple. Visitors from inside and outside of Jerusalem came. They'd go to the capital, and they'd venture into the temple courtyards, and they would pay their 10% tithe. And then they would buy their ritual sacrifices and give them to the priest to offer to God. It's routine. It's just something they did every year, year in and year out, something you did. It's like paying taxes. We may begrudge it a little bit. We may look forward to April 15th with different levels of joy. But it's just as routine to them. It's $5, $10, whatever it is they offer, a routine tithe to the temple. And people would come forward to the tax collector or tithe collector, I guess, and the tithe collector would read aloud their name and the amount of their tithe. They would say, Luke, $12. Nicole, $50. Elaine, $3,000. And everyone would note in their head exactly how much that person had give, given and exactly how important that person was. These were visible signs, tangible signs of relative wealth. And so then, suitably puffed up or ashamed, depending on where you were in that milieu, that stratosphere, the person would go over to the animals to be slaughtered and then offer to God the best animal they could purchase. A pigeon or a goat, it depended. Forgiven and part of the body for one more year, the person would turn away and leave the temple. Did I mention all this happened in public, in front of everyone they knew? and a bunch of other people? How do you think that must have felt for them? When was the last time you let somebody look at your checking account? What if John, instead of asking how much you wanted to give, asked you to give him your bank statement and then assigned you in a tithe? How would you react? That's exactly how these people felt. Everyone in town knew exactly how much they had exactly how much money they gave, and whether or not they gave enough money comparative to their wealth or their appearance of wealth. And Jesus, he points to this ritual and says, do you see these people? There's one man dressed in his pinstripe suit and ties. Do you see him? Look at how much he gives to the treasury. It's exactly his 10%. And there he goes and buys a goat, and he offers it to, his, to be sacrificed. Do you see him? He's empty. There's nothing in that act for him except the ritual of habit, the bare minimum sacrifice. Then Jesus turns their attention to the person in the crowd that nobody else noticed. She's a widow. She's unimportant. She doesn't have any family there with her, no friends to walk with her to the table. And she puts her two bits into the plate. And she buys a love offering of two pigeons, which was the least you could do. And no one noticed her because they were too busy looking at the man who had just given such an extravagant gift. Jesus, Jesus sees her. He sees her, not the amount she gives, but her. 
She sees the widow, and maybe she's wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt that has a little hole in the hem. But she's bypassing all of the gatekeepers. She's trying to keep her head down. She wants to slip in and out without anybody noticing. She does the ritual, but it's filled with shame. Her, Jesus says, she's the one. She's the one who's the most faithful because she gave with humility. But she did that because that was her only choice. No one noticed her. Not one person noticed that she did the right thing. Now you'll notice Jesus isn't criticizing the ritual. He isn't saying don't give tithes and don't return to the temple. And he's not saying that the rich man did anything wrong. He did what he was supposed to do. His only critique is the temple who chooses to recognize only the important people. Now, part of Jesus' critique is aimed at that temple because the temple and the religious complex required the widow more than she was able to give. If these were truly her last coins, then how is she going to eat? And is that just? Is that right of the temple to ask her to do that? Where was she staying? Where does she live? If this is really all she has, then what kind of religion asks somebody to go without food so they can give money to God? And is the ritual really so important as, as for her to starve to death? Could the temple not have found another way for her to give? The other end of this critique is the emptiness of the ritual. This process is designed to either make someone look good or look bad, depending on how much they could, could give. And it by necessity excludes people. It by necessity excludes those who choose to come and participate because their names are shouted louder. And it excludes those who couldn't participate because they didn't have any money to give at all. Shouldn't the temple worker have noticed the widow? He was sitting right there. She dropped her coins into the plate. It made some noise, as we've seen. Shouldn't he have taken the time to notice that she didn't have any more money? Shouldn't he have cared that she wasn't going to be okay? Jesus is showing the disciples that generosity, that giving of others, is not about what you do. It's not about how much you give or how generously you provide or even the process of giving, but it's about seeing the person on the other end of the giving. If the ritual is empty, it doesn't speak to the people who are in the midst of it either side. And no one recognizes the humanity of the people involved in the process. And if we don't see the people in the process, then that ritual is no longer of God. Generosity is about the person. It's not about the amount of money or the percentages. If you look back on your life and you think of the people who you would describe as generous, my guess is those are the people who didn't give everything that they had or gave lots of money, but people who saw you, who were generous with their spirit, who were kind and thoughtful. The people who saw you in the midst of whatever you needed. Now we've spent the last few days honoring folks who were at, being asked to literally give up everything they had, like the widow. Some of these people, some of our veterans, are remembered not on Veterans Day, but on another holiday in May where we call Memorial Day, because they literally did give everything that they had. And it's too simple to go through the rituals and not see the people behind them. People who often are still suffering, 
who often carry with them the wounds of war. What example does their generosity give to us? And do we see those people? In a few moments, we're going to hear a report from the nominating committee where we're going to ask two people to be generous of spirit and time. Generous of spirit and time and talent and imagination and love. And it could be an empty ritual, ritual we rush through so we can get to lunch. But what if we took the time to see the people in the midst of that ritual? The ones who are being generous with their lives. We're going to pack gifts for children around the world who have less than we do as an act of generosity. What if instead of a ritual as empty as the boxes we will pack, we take the time to see the person on the other end of the box? What if we take the time to examine our position in this act and do we give our best? Generosity in the end is about choosing to see the person. The person who's caught up in the midst of the transactions which make up that act of generosity. Not a caricature, not a cartoon, not a cipher, but a person. Are we asking more than the person can give? Are we going through the motions so we don't have to see the need in the other? Is the process full of God? We should give acts of gratitude as an act of faith. We should see that people are a child of God and God's love and that grace from God is abundant. And so we can open ourselves up to the possibility of authentic generosity, where we see the person behind the title, where we actually look at them and see that they're vulnerable and wounded, that they need the grace God provides. We can be generous. Amen.